The reading is Psalm 116. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy, because he turned his ear to me. I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came over me. I was overcome by distress and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the unwary. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, Lord, have delivered me from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I trusted in the Lord when I said, I am greatly afflicted. In my alarm, I said, everyone is a liar. What shall I return to the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. Truly, I am your servant, Lord. I serve you just as my mother did. You have freed me from my chains. I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord in your midst, Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. This is God's word. Evening, everybody. It's uh, lovely to have you here. My name's Phil. I'm associate minister here. And if we've not met, it would be lovely to, to get a chance to see you afterwards. Our Father God, we cry out to you as a God who is faithful, as a God who hears his people and answers their prayers. Please, Father, would you open our eyes to see your truth. But more than that, Father, would we, uh, would we hear it speak to us? Father, would we recognize ourselves here? And Father, would we be filled with joy as we see your salvation? Amen. What should we do when our prayers are answered? What should you do when you pray to God and he answers? Well, Psalm 116, verses 1 to 2. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, well, I will call on him as long as I live. Now, I think those of us who are Christians probably spend a fair amount of time, if we're honest, thinking about wrestling with the issue of what on earth do I do if God doesn't answer my prayers? What do I do when, when my prayers aren't answered, or at least aren't, aren't, aren't answered in the way I wanted, or as quickly as I would have liked? Many of us have thought about that. But what about when prayers are answered? Funnily enough, I, I often find that we've thought less about that issue. And that's the issue that this psalm goes to. Now, what do we do when, when we're in desperate need, desperate longing? We cry out to God. We've persevered praying and praying and praying. And, and the answer comes wonderfully. What do we do when our heartfelt pleas and met with a heavenly rescue? Well, the answer here is pray more. That's what you should do. I mean, imagine if a, um, you get a knock on your door and you're a little bit concerned because you, your student debts are a little bit higher than you had hoped and your repayment plan is a little bit less regular than it probably should be and you're in a little bit of trouble. And you're getting uh, letters which are, ooh, they're kind of red. 
They're like the Harry Potter growler letters coming from bailiffs and people like that. And you get a knock on the door and you're a bit nervous. But you open the door and there's a smartly dressed person there. And they say, ah, oh, Philip, I'm very pleased to meet you. Uh, I am here as a representative of a very wealthy relative whom you never met. Interesting. Doesn't happen often. Uh, and uh, he left his worldly wealth in a bank account to be used for your advantage. Is there anything you'd like me to do? Well, that is rather wonderful. As it happens, I have this uh, rather awkward issue of a student debt. Is there any chance? Well, how much is it? Well, could you repay £78,000, please? Why, certainly, sir. Oh, that is rather nice. That'd be good, wouldn't it? Uh, What would you do then? Close the door, rest, rip up the letters. I suggest you would probably also contact him again in the coming days. It would be a strange thing if you knew that there was this enormous fund of money to be applied for your benefit and you used it once and it worked wonderfully if you never used it again. This psalm tells us the almighty power of God in heaven is there at the disposal of his children. Yes, he doesn't do everything we want. He's not that stupid. But he is... He's there to bless us. All of his resources are available. And so when we get answers to prayer, when we receive blessing from God, the right response is, well, I should pray more. I should just keep praying if this is what happens. Now, verses uh, 1 to 2 are the the overture for the psalm. They sort of tell us what's going on. They summarize what he's going to say in detail in the next 17 verses. And this is the summary. I cried to the Lord. He heard my cry, so I'll just keep on crying out to him as long as I shall live. That's what this psalm tells us. I cried to the Lord, he heard my cry, so I'm keeping on crying out to him, as long as I shall live. Now the context here is pretty intense. The psalmist was in extreme danger and had a dramatic answer. But don't think that that means that if you and I live relatively safe, untroubled lives, that that means it has nothing to say to us. I want you to see that this, if you trust in Christ, is your story. And if it was not your story when you arrived this evening, it could be your story when you leave. Let's look through it. You've got the outline there. Just two points from the psalm. God rescues for rest and relationship and our right response is to rejoice. Firstly, uh, verses 3 to 11, God rescues for rest and relationship. Now it begins with a terrifying predicament really, verses 3 to 4. The cords of death entangled me, the anguish of the grave came over me. I was overcome by distress and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Lord, save me! Death is not just a possibility here, it is the likely outcome. And death is not just some passive state we fall into. Do you see how death is aggressively pursuing? Death has claws, tentacles that's gripping, dragging down, ruining, bringing to death. Now, I guess for most of us, the the closest we ever get to this is that heart-in-the-mouth moment when you're slightly distracted uh, on the motorway and there's the the loud blast of a lorry's horn and suddenly there's there's something in your blind spot, a screech of tires, a a squeal of brakes, and your heart pounds as you realize you almost ended up wrapped around the front of a lorry. But this is something actually much worse than that that's going on here. It's not momentary, that, uh, that terrifying wake up and, and the jolt and the burst of adrenaline. This is sustained, nerve shredding, ongoing, traumatic fear. I remember reading um, uh, a month or two ago about some hostages who'd been rescued from Islamic State. And their captivity was appalling to read about. 
They talked about the savage beatings and the um, being barely fed. But the thing that was worse, the thing that really, really broke them were the mock executions. They'd be taken out of the cell, marched into a room with a video camera and the flag, you know the setup, and be told to kneel. And someone would stand next to them and put a pistol to their head. And the trigger would be pulled, click, but there's no bullet in. And the laughter from the captors, and then they'd be dragged back to the cell. And it would happen again and again and again. But every time you didn't know whether this would be the time when there'd be a live round. And it just destroyed their nerves. It broke them and plunged them into a sort of dark, numbing despair. And that's what the psalmist is facing here. That terrifying feeling of death has you in its clutches. And your chances of escape are very, very limited. But as human help has run out, the psalmist turns and cries to God for salvation. Now what is interesting here is that he calls out, verse 4, in the name of the Lord. Now what does that mean? Why in the name of the Lord? Why not just, I called out to the Lord? What's the difference? Well, to call out in the name of the Lord, what it means is something much richer than just to call on the Lord. It means to call out on God, trusting in, consciously trusting in, his character as revealed in Scripture. That's what it means to call on the name of the Lord, to consciously trust in his character as revealed in Scripture. Why do I say that? Well, back in Exodus 34, when God had just rescued the Israelites uh, from Egypt, which is the context of these Psalms, remember Psalms 113 to 118, all about the rescue from Egypt. But in that episode, as God reveals what he's like to the people of Israel, Moses says, Moses the leader says, Lord, um, show me your face, reveal yourself to me. And in Exodus 34, 6, we read this. The Lord came down and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming his name. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents, the third and fourth generation. Do you see that God's name that he proclaims there? It's, it's characteristics. It's what he's like. It's God's name is his unchanging character, his faithfulness, his kindness, his justice, his compassion, his mercy, his power, his love. Now do you see how that links to verse 5 in our psalm? Verses 5 to 6. So verse 4, I call on the name of the Lord, Lord save me. Verse 5, the Lord is gracious and righteous and full of compassion. The Lord protects the unwary. And when I was brought low, he saved me. You see, verse 5, this is what he did when he called on the name of the Lord. He prayed in the light of God's character. On the basis, God, you are gracious. You are righteous. You are full of compassion. You protect the unwary. That is the simple you so often get taken advantage of. And so wonderfully, because you're like this, you answered my prayer. So in other words, to pray in God's name means much more than just in the name of Jesus, amen, tacked onto the end of our prayers. It means explicitly praying because of who God is and what he is like. What he's promised and who he is. And that means we can pray boldly because we pray on the basis of God's perfect, unchanging character and his trustworthy promises. 
It means we pray, God, please help me to have the humility and courage to say sorry to the friend I really hurt. God, you are a God of compassion who helps those who call to you. God, you're a God of faithfulness who never walks out on his people. So help me not to walk away from this difficult relationship. Help me to seek to reconcile, for you are the reconciler. Be true to yourself and help me to mend this messy, broken friendship. That's what it means to pray in the name of the Lord. It means we pray, you are Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, the Lord who provides. You are the God who is generous and who tells his children to pray for daily bread. So Lord, I've been out of work for ages. Please, please, with this next interview, lead to a job. Help me to be able to work so I can pay the bills. In the name of Jesus, amen. That's what it means to pray in the name of the Lord. To pray grounded in his character. And God answers the prayer, verse 7. Return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. Now I love that. I love that verse because of the implication. Do you see, we were made for rest. The outcome of God's answering our prayers for rescue is rest. God rescues us for rest. He didn't, he didn't design you to endure endless strife and suffering. He designed you to enjoy perfect rest. That's not inactivity. It's that sensation when everything is right. When you feel at home. When relationships work and, and work is fulfilling. And you see, just as verses 5 to 6 <clears throat> explained what calling in the name was in verse 4, so verses 8 to 9 explained explain what this rest is that's mentioned in verse 7. Now, uh, look at verses 8 to 9 with me. For you, Lord, uh, come back to 7 actually, return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, Lord, have delivered me from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. You see, rest was what Adam and Eve had in Eden. It was perfect work in a perfect world with perfect relationships with God and with one another. And rest was what they lost when they turned their backs on God and we rebelled and we brought chaos and disorder and strife into our lives. And we were thrown out of God's presence where we belong and we have not been at rest ever since. That deep aching longing that every single one of us knows and that we feel in so many different ways in our lives, that is the longing for God's rest. And every human being has known it and lived with it since we were thrown out of Eden, when we were alienated from God. We were left wandering in a world where we've never quite felt at home and where there's danger and disappointment. And God wants us to know rest Rest from the shadow of death that lurks over all of us. He has delivered me from death. He is the mighty hero who can and does rescue us from death. He raised Jesus Christ out of the grave after three days. And he rescues you and me from the fear of death. Death is still the last enemy. It is still brutal. But it has lost its sting and its fear if we trust in the God who raises the dead. But amazingly, this mighty hero who can overcome death is also the one who wipes tears from the eyes. He delivers us from, who uh, delivers us from, from our eyes from tears and our feet from stumbling. Who watches over our steps so that we're not ruined and destroyed in this difficult world. 
And at the heart of rest, verse 9, is relationship. The purpose of it all, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. God rescues us so that we'll be with him. That's his ultimate purpose. Instead of wandering in the brokenness of the world, he wants our souls at home with him. Now, we won't know perfect rest until the new creation when we'll be bodily with God, finally. But when we enjoy God's rescue now, it's as if we eat the first course of the banquet, which he's preparing. Already we know freedom from the fear of death and judgment. Already we walk with God by his spirit in us. And soon enough, you and I, if we trust in Jesus, will be at home with God forever. It is a wonderful thing. He rescues us for rest and relationship. Which means it's rather tempting just to skip over verses 9 to 10, which don't, or 10 to 11, which kind of don't seem like they fit in really. Uh, they, they rather break the flow. But actually, they're a very important end note to this little section. Verse 10, I trusted in the Lord when I said, I am greatly afflicted. In my alarm, I said, everyone is a liar. See, I think the point here is that you find out whether you really trust in Jesus when life goes against you. That's when you find out if you really trust in Jesus. When life goes against you, you're left with one of two options if you call yourself a Christian. One, you can let the disappointment, the discouragement, the pain, the difficulty drive you away from God and just walk away in bitterness. Or two, you can bring your pain, bring your disappointment, bring your discouragement and your doubts and take them to God and pray to him honestly. See, the Christian is not the person who doesn't have doubts, discouragement, disappointment and and suffering. The Christian is the person who brings those things to God. And that's why he's able to say in verses 10 to 11, I trusted in the Lord when I said I'm greatly afflicted. That wasn't a declaration of lack of faith. That was a declaration of faith that I said those things as a Christian before God. Now, it may be that you read these verses and actually you know this experience. Uh, You know what it is to face a, a deeply pessimistic cancer prognosis. Or you know what it is to be caught up in the sort of accident that people just don't walk away from usually. You know what it is to hit genuine rock bottom in life and not know whether you can carry on. And you know what it is in that situation to cry out to God and to find that he hears, he answers, and he rescues. And if that's you, I hope these words help you to remember and to rejoice. But I guess for many of us, uh, we're looking from the outside at verses like this. The most dangerous thing we've done is eat street food or go on a bungee jump. And, you know, our lives don't know a huge amount of genuine, genuine danger. But dig a little deeper and you realize this psalm is not recounting the rare experience of the few. This is proclaiming what is true of all who trust in Christ. Every one of us. You see, to be rescued from physical danger in this life is just the palest imitation of what God has done eternally for you in Jesus Christ if you trust in him. Let me put it this way. To be a Christian... To be a follower of Jesus is to have stood at the mouth of hell. It is to have stood at the mouth of eternal hell and felt the full force of God's judgment, God's the fury of his justice driving you in over the brink. And as you teeter on the edge, ready to be destroyed for eternity, to cry out for mercy for Jesus to save you and to know God pluck you out. 
and bring you back to eternal life with him forever. To be a Christian is to, be, to have been rescued from certain deserved eternal damnation and instead to enjoy eternal rest and relationship with God. And that experience is open to every single person. That rescue is open to all. All you need to do is cry out to Jesus for forgiveness for your sins. God rescues us for rest and relationship wonderfully. And secondly, uh, the right response is to rejoice. Uh, This second half of the psalm really does just dig into, okay, so how should you respond if you've been saved, if you know this God has saved you? And there is a structure sort of like a sandwich going on in this second half. So if you look down with me, you'll see verses 12 to 14 and verses 17 to 19. There are lots of similar phrases going on. They're the bread of the sandwich. And then the meat is in the middle. And the meat is verses 15 to 16. We'll start with the bread. It's always better to um, go to the, the meaty bit at the end. So, verses 12 to 14. What shall I return to the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. Verse 17. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord. In your midst, Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Okay, how does God want us to respond to this salvation if he saved you? Two things, enjoy salvation and serve God. Very simple, enjoy salvation and serve God. That's what God wants us to do. Verse 12, what shall I return to the Lord for all his goodness to me? The answer comes, verse 13, I will lift up the cup of salvation. Salvation is a cup that God presents to us and he wants us to drink deeply of the wonderful forgiveness that is there. To thank him and drink it down. The right response when he answers the cry for salvation is to rejoice, to keep on crying out and to receive it. Uh, Christmas is coming, if you hadn't noticed, and that means uh, presents, which is wonderful. Everybody loves at least getting presents anyway. But there is a right and a wrong way to receive presents. I'm not sure if you realize this. There is a very wrong way. Um, So a guy I used to live with, his, uh, his former housemate was notorious for the way that he opened presents. It was... I mean, picture this. The family all gather around. Everybody uh, has all the presents under the tree. And he would bring down from his bedroom two boxes, two empty boxes. One had large letters written, keep, and the other said, charity shop. And he would open his presents in front of the family, consider each one, and allocate it into the appropriate box. I kid you not. The amazing thing is every year they still gave him presents. I have to say, (laughs) I'm thinking, jog on, mate. Um, But there we go. Um, What do you do? What do you want someone to do when you give them a nice present? What do you want them to do? Get out their wallet. Let me just see how much uh, that's worth. Um, Hang on a second. Let me see if I've got enough right here. What? Oh, no. This, This looks... Far too nice a present. I couldn't possibly open this. Let me just put it on a shelf and leave it there. Uh, you want, when you give someone a nice present, you want them to rip it open and to, and to enjoy it and to play with it, if it's a toy, um, the best presents are, uh, and you know, to, to, to actually make use of whatever it is. You wear the socks or whatever the wonderful present happens to be. You want them to enjoy it, to thank you and to be happy. 
You don't want them to repay you or to ignore it. And God wants us to enjoy salvation. He wants us to rip open his Christmas present to us, Jesus Christ. To thank him and to make use, to trust in Jesus and to receive salvation. He wants us to call out to him and delight in him. Now the second bit of bread, 17 to 19, uh, involves, um, tells us something else about, salva- about the, the, the salvation we receive from Jesus and how we should respond. And it, it talks about celebration really. So verse 17, I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the, pe- to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, Jerusalem. The psalmist needs to go to the temple, which is the place where God's people gather for prayer and praise and sacrifice. He needs to go to be where God's people are to celebrate God's rescue of him. His experience is so good that he he needs to go to join in the temple for the praise. You know, instinctively, we know that when there's something good, something we need to celebrate, we need other people to do it. I mean, I'm sure as you look back in your life, there'll be a, a whole heap of achievements worthy of celebration, academic, sporting, weddings, births, whatever it is. There there are things that you look back on. I had such an amazing time celebrating on my own. Said no one ever. (laughs) You you celebrate with other people. It is miserable to, to celebrate something on your own. It's not a celebration. It's part of why we do church here each Sunday. You can't do church by the internet, the sort of virtual church things. One of the reasons we do so is that each week we gather to help one another celebrate God's glorious rescue. Each week that you come, your presence, your voice, loud is better than quiet. It doesn't really matter the quality. The louder we all sing, the better it always sounds. But each week when you, your presence, your voice helps other people enjoy their salvation more. Whether you feel like you need to be at church or not, whatever struggles are going on for you, the wonderful thing is that just by being here, just by exercising enough faith to say, I will sing these words even though I find them a struggle tonight. You are helping others enjoy their salvation more. Isn't that wonderful? And as they do so, you know, it stirs me too when I arrive feeling low and miserable and find it very hard to see much good about the Christian life. And then I hear you guys sing and it stirs me up again to remember how good Jesus is. We celebrate together and the psalmist instinctively knows that he needs to be with God's people to do so. So we're to enjoy salvation and secondly, we're to serve God. It's only natural that when you receive so much from him that we want to do stuff for him. Verse 14, I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Verse 18, I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. This isn't bargain prayers. God, if you get me out of this, I'll do that. God, if you give me this job, I'll invite my housemates to the carols, I promise. This is not what's going on. This is just the natural response whereby God's rich generosity to us, well, it unlocks our hearts. Uh, the previous minister here, Richard Koken, was, um, uh, a number of years ago, was in a, a meeting for ministers um, in the area where another church that he worked for was. And they were amazed that his tiny little church seemed to raise enormous amounts of money. 
Uh, I mean, hundreds of thousands of pounds from a smallish group of, of ordinary people. And he was asked to, to come and speak because all their churches were basically skint. And he, <laughs> he stood up and basically said, there is no strategy. There is no trick. We preach the gospel. And when people find out that God has given us the most precious thing in the universe, Jesus Christ, to pay for our salvation when we didn't deserve it, they want to be generous. It unlocks their hearts. The gospel is our only strategy. And they were very annoyed because they didn't want to preach the gospel and they just wanted the strategy. And he said, the gospel is the strategy. See, it's perfectly natural that when you receive deliverance from God, when you receive uh, some answer to prayer, a relative pulls through when you thought they would die, a threatened redundancy doesn't happen. Or just when you have a fresh experience of just how utterly ugly and proud and selfish your heart is, and you really, you realize quite how, you know, we talk this confession and you say the words, but you really feel quite how dark your soul is. And you, and, uh, you remember again how amazingly undeserving you are of God's salvation. When we have those experiences, it's only natural we want to do things for God, to serve him. This is a pattern I observe at church, which is built on um, the fact that God is much better at recruiting people than I am. Who knew? Um, I'm not very good at recruiting people, but I notice that God is very, very good. Because again and again, I find that what happens is that um, uh, jobs, rotors, service, new ministries, they don't arise because I've strategized or even because I've asked people to do things. Time and again, stuff happens, new ministries begin, because people have started to learn more about Jesus Christ. And as they, as they dig in more, as their understanding grows, eventually the time comes after a number of months when they say, i just really like to serve. I was wondering whether I might be able to get involved doing this, or doing that, or giving, or whatever it is. It's just a natural outcome. God's generosity opens our hearts to want to serve. And that brings us to verses 15 to 16, which are very odd, let's be honest. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. Truly I am your servant, Lord. I serve you just as my mother did. You have freed me from my chains. This is a psalm all about God rescuing people who call on him. And in the meat, in the middle of the last section, which is a section all about celebrating God's rescue, you get a bit about God's servants dying. That just is odd. This isn't about rescue. It's about death. What's it doing here? Well, many of us are studying the book of Hebrews this term in our midweek studies. And throughout Hebrews, the the writer quotes the book of Psalms and shows us that the Psalms aren't just prayers and songs for the Christian life. They're also prophecy. They also teach us things about Jesus Christ. They shed light on his life, his death, and his resurrection, what it means to walk in his footsteps. And this psalm, like so many, points us to Jesus Christ very clearly. See, he is God's precious servant, his most precious servant, and he died. But his death explains our rescue. You see, he drained the cup of God's wrathful judgment, so you and I might lift and drink the cup of salvation. He was entangled by the cords of death and brought right down into the grave so that you and I might be freed from the chains of sin and death. 
He was rejected by the people and killed out of the city so that you and I might gather in the presence of all God's people and praise him. He died on the cross as a faithful servant so that you and I might live forever as sons and daughters. His death is the reason for our rescue. So what does this psalm teach us? It teaches us that God answers the prayers of his people. He answers the prayers of those who cry out for salvation. And he gives us rest and relationship. Now here's the thing. When he's done that, it makes us want to pray to him more. You see, when God has answered the greatest need you could possibly have had, that is forgiveness for eternal damnation, getting rid of our sin, taking us from hell to heaven. When he's answered that, and when he's paid a price beyond anything in the universe, giving up his own son, well then we should know it's worth praying to him for everything else. Romans 8 uh, verse 32, Paul says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If God has answered the biggest prayer we could ever pray, if God has paid the greatest price for us that could ever be paid, how can we not trust him to meet our daily needs? Why would we not pray to him to do so? Uh, My wife was at a panel um, with some retired missionaries a few years ago. And all of them had at least 30 years on the mission field uh, serving the gospel in tough parts of the world. And one of them was asked, uh, you've been... You've retired now, you've been on the mission field for years, you've had a very fruitful and faithful ministry, you've stuck to the gospel in spite of real hardships, and you've seen some great things happen. What's your biggest regret? Odd question to ask somebody who'd had a very fruitful ministry. And his answer was very, very striking. He said, my biggest regret is I didn't pray more. One way or another, I think I saw answers to all the great prayers I prayed for the ministry while I was out there. Who knows how much more might have been achieved for the honor of Jesus' name if I'd only prayed more? Striking answer. God answers our prayers for rescue. And he answers us with rest and relationship in him. And he wants us to learn that if if he answers that prayer, then we should pray to him for everything else we need. Let's pray now. Our Father, yes, there, are, uh, there is confusion and many of us um, struggle with unanswered prayer in our lives. But we do pray that as we, as we see your willingness to answer the greatest prayer we could ever pray, for salvation from hell through the unimaginable price of your son's death in our place, we pray that we would learn to trust that you are good and so would cry out to you more and more and more. Help us to know your character, your name, so that we might pray confidently. And help us, Father, as we pray more and more in your name, for your glory, to be filled with joy and rejoicing and delight as we see you answer the things you've prompted us to pray. Amen.